Not exhausted. I'm ready. Fantastic. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to all of you I can see online. Um, welcome to the many who will be watching the recording the next few days from across the world. Hope you all had an enjoyable and meaningful Purim. Um, it is a tremendous honor uh, that we have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Mark Shapiro to the Khabura. Although it may be your first time giving us a class directly, I must say that your, your books and your, your work are constantly being discussed in our discussion groups and in all our forums. Um, and your research has, has definitely impacted so many of our members, um, unearthing details of, of our tradition, of Chachamim, uh, that very few other uh, academics or even rabbis um, know much about. And, and I'm sure it'll be the first of, of many series with us. Uh, for those not acquainted with our guest tonight, uh, Dr. Shapiro, is, uh, holds the, the Weinberg Chair of Judaic Studies at the University of Scranton, a graduate of Brandeis, and did his PhD at Harvard. He's the author of numerous books, articles, and reviews, and is a popular scholar in residence at synagogues around the world. He's written between um, the yeshiva world and modern orthodoxy and the limits of orthodox theology, both of which were National Jewish Book Award finalists. Um, in 2019, he published... Igerot Malcheir de Rabbanan, which contains more than 30 years of correspondence with some of the world's most outstanding Torah scholars. He regularly publishes widely scholarly articles on the Sforim blog, which I strongly recommend, and is currently writing a book on the thought of Rav Kook. So this two-part series will be on Chacham Eliyab and Amozek, which has become, I think, a household name at the Chaburah, but in truth, I think it is a rabbi that every Jewish home should be familiar with, particularly people who are religious and integrated in the world. Um, and are interested in, in wider culture. Um, so I'm sure this will be fascinating. Anyways, I think I've said enough. Uh, the floor is all yours. We'll, we'll take questions at the end. And Bechavod. Uh, yes, hello. Thank you. And I'm very happy to be here. And uh, as we just heard, it's, I hope it's to be a two-part series. That was on my assumption that uh, we won't get through everything we need to today. And we'll need a second class. Uh, as I said, that, that is my assumption. And uh, the subject is Rabbi Eliel ben Amozig, and I'm happy to hear that uh, he's a household uh, word, household name uh, in the Chabura, because uh, he is not uh, around the Jewish world, uh, the wider Jewish world, uh, certainly not in the Orthodox Jewish world. Uh, since he is a household name, maybe you've seen his picture, but if not, uh, here he is. Uh, uh, if you uh, now that we're back to traveling again, if you go to Livorno uh, and you go see the beautiful synagogue that they built after the war, um, it's the court, the um, the street in front or the uh, the square is uh, Ben Amozig Square, and if you can get into the cemetery, you will also uh, be able to see uh, his grave. His dates are 1823 to 1900. He's a Mor of Moroccan descent, although uh, an Italian rabbi, and he born there, lived there. Uh, he, he was not a rav of a shul or of a community. He made his living as a printer. In fact, many of the most important books of North Africa, Sfarim, were printed by him. Um, in addition to his uh, wide Torah knowledge that we're going to speak about, he knew Italian, he knew French, Latin, Greek, he read widely. Now, most people, if they know about Eliab and Amozig, they know about 
two areas that I'm not going to look at unless uh, next class we have some extra time. First of all, he's known for um, his discussions of the Noahide covenant, the whole idea of uh, the Shev Mitzvah Noach and uh, his famous student who wanted to convert to Judaism, and he convinced him that no, he would accomplish more by remaining a Noahide, because uh, Ben Amozik has this conception that uh, we think of the Torah in a two-parochial manner. That is, the Torah is intended not just for the Jews, but it's intended as guidance for the world. And uh, often we only see it, as I said, in this uh, particularistic parochial manner. So this is an important area of Ben Amozig. A lot have been written, a lot has been written on it, and uh, maybe we will come back to it. He's also known as a great defender of Kabbalah. He engaged in disputes with the, another great Italian sage who stood on the opposite side, uh, Shadal Shmuel David Gozzato. In fact, in the last issue of Hakira. It's number 31, the, the important journal, Hakira. It's not available yet online, the, the article I'm referring to. They usually wait till the next issue comes out. So uh, when unless you have a copy, you have to wait to the next issue. But there's an, an article in it which includes translation of the correspondence of Ben Amozig and Shadal about uh, Kabbalah. And there's been a revival of interest in him in recent years, not just... Uh, among the uh, Chabura, for example, you can uh, see here uh, a book that came out uh, recently, just uh, last year or so, uh, by a woman, uh, Clemens Buluk. Uh, she's not Jewish, by the way, uh, uh, called Another Modernity, Elia Ben Amozig's Jewish Universalism. So I think that's uh, it's a quite a significant and uh, a good book. <clears throat> Furthermore, Rabbi Zinni. There's yeshiva in Israel, in Haifa, called Orvi Shua, and the rabbi is uh, Algerian, and by way of France, he was the rabbi of Tachnion for a while, Rabbi uh, Eliyahu Zinni. He's published a number of works, both in French as well as in uh, translation. In Hebrew, here's one, this appeared in original. It's the uh, introduction to Tarsha Balpeh of, uh, of Ben Amozeg, also... Um, his work that appeared in French, and Zinni translated it on Torah Shabal Peh, and his very important work, um, Jewish Ethics um, in Opposition to Christian Ethics, uh, and all these works have the, um, the notes of uh, Rabbi Zinni. But other than this, these recent uh, writings and uh, appearances of these books, uh, Ben Amozig is not a household name. Among the great Torah scholars today, Rabbi Mazuz, Mayor Mazuz, does quote him, but he's the only one I know who quotes him. So uh, hopefully we'll see a bit of a revival. What I want to speak about now is, uh, is a different area, and that's something more controversial. But uh, what we're going to see from Rabbi Ben Amozig is, I think we can fairly say, stands the test of time and is uh, very valuable. What we're going to see now is also perhaps why in the Syrian community, I don't know if we have any uh, Syrians listening, perhaps I should say from the Aleppo community, why he has been persona non grata. Well, so let's begin. In the 1860s, uh, Ben Amozig began publishing his commentary on the Torah called Eim Mikra. Here's, um, let me show you the title page of it. Um, you can find all five volumes of this online. And uh, I, uh, I I think I even have uh, 
let me just check quickly. I think I even have uh, PDFs of it because a few of them um, you need to, um, well, maybe I don't have, I'm looking to see on my computer now, but if anyone wants, I said you can write to me. I don't know if I have copies of all of them. I have most of them, but uh, uh, you need to access certain libraries that are not publicly available, but I did have access because I have copies of them all. So for instance, um, you can, this is, I believe, was from Harvard a Library. Um, you can make copies of them and then have them bound. So um, he, here you see a title page of his Amon Mikra. And all you have to do to see, get a sense of what it is, is uh, look at the description here. He says that this includes uh, notes, comments, hakirot, investigations, new uh, interpretations based upon based upon uh, philology, and he puts it into uh, Hebrew there, and also Bikur criticism and Kadmoniot uh, uh, archaeology and the histories of Babylonia and Assyria and Egypt and the, the beliefs and the practices of the earlier non nations. Uh, uh, he goes on to say that we're going to look at the, investigate uh, the opinions of the contemporary uh, scholars and also the Midrashim of Chazal, etc., etc. And that's the name of the commentary. Emo Masoret didn't appear. That's, uh, it was also going to publish, focusing on uh, Chazal and the, the, the Talmud and the Midrash, etc. But what we have here is Emo Mikra. You can see there's a, um, a French uh, title page as well, in which he... Um, he says it here, hold on, um, it's with the commentaries and uh, the same thing, just uh, translated uh, into French. Very nice commentary. I highly recommend uh, printing it out. A few of, the few of the volumes, I think two of them, you can find on HebrewBooks.org. And at least in America, you can just click on a button and uh, print it, and I'll send you a bound copy uh, a few days later. Uh, however... The controversy begins because in 1865, the rabbis of Aleppo sending letter to the rabbis of Jerusalem attacking Revelyel ben Amozig in his commentary. And we have, if you want to see the actual letter, uh, a copy of it survives at the Hebrew University Library. Here it is. Uh, and uh, you can enlarge the pages. It's written in that old... Uh, Middle Eastern script that's not so simple. I can tell you that although passages of this letter have been published, the complete letter, which is a number of pages, nine pages, uh, has never been published. So if anyone knows that script and wants to do a good project, uh, feel free. Yeah. Okay, so they write the rabbis of Aleppo, write to the rabbis of Jerusalem, attacking Ben Amozig in his commentary. According to the rabbis of Aleppo, Ben Amozig is nothing less than a heretic, not Bikurus. And his commentary is forbidden to be used. They declare, in fact, that the commentary should be burnt. And they compare Emla Mikra to Azariah de Rossi's Maore Naim. Now, Maore Naim also uh, was a controversial book, and some people declared it as heretical. But uh, plenty of uh, people in the Jewish world, in the traditional Jewish world, uh, treasured that book and uh, cited it. And uh, so it was a dispute. And there's a similar, there was a dispute uh, about Ben Amozig, the rabbis of Jerusalem. Although they agreed with uh, the Aleppo rabbis that the commentary should be banned, they didn't go to so far as to say that Ben Amozig was himself a heretic. Rather, Ben Amozig made certain mistakes. Ben Amozig 
would write to rabbis, and uh, he got support as well. So, for instance, uh, Rav Chaim Palachi, the great Rav Chaim Palachi of uh, Izmir, he supported uh, Rabbi ben Now, what was the problem that the rabbis of uh, Aleppo had with the Eim Mikra? I mean, you can look through the entire book. You won't find any uh, heretical statements. At least I never found anything. Well, first of all, they claim that it's uh, too modern a work. It makes use of comparative religion, comparing old Jewish practices, uh, Torah practices, with the practices of the idolaters. So he'll compare practices that we see in the Torah with, uh, let's say, ancient Egyptian or ancient Assyrian practices. Uh, They opposed how Ben Amoza would show that certain practices were shared by lots of people in the ancient Near East, including the the ancient Hebrews. Uh, Ben Amoza's position a number of times expresses this, is that the Torah took already already, uh, established practices and adds Kedushah to these practices and incorporates them in the Torah. So, for instance, uh, Ben Amoza suggested that uh, the nations, and he has sources for these, that the nations before Moshe Rabbeinu also wore a type of tzitzit on their garments. And this was why it was commanded by the Torah. In other words, uh, this was already a practice. So the Torah uses a widespread practice, but instead of it being pagan or just uh, superstitious, it instills kedusha in it by... Uh, turning us in a direction, a holy direction. Uh, similarly, circumcision wasn't invented by the by uh, ancient Israel. It was already in existence, but it now is no longer something secular. It now is uh, supposed to symbolize the Brit that the, the children of Israel have with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So the sages of Aleppo see this as... Um, a disgrace, as degrading to God. They write that what? HaKadosh Baruch Hu could not come up with his own mitzvot. Instead, he had to take them from the practices of the nations. Now, I happen to think this is a very unsophisticated way of uh, looking at uh, what Ben Amozig was saying, but it's not just me who's saying this, and it's not just Ben Amozig who's saying this. This is something you find already in the important early authorities. I'll just give you a couple examples. This book recently came out in a much better edition than the earlier edition. The earlier edition, here is this, the commentary of Rav Avram ben Harambam on Bereshit and Shemot. It, it's actually a product of London because it was produced, it came from, uh, it was published through the, the, the funds. It was sponsored by Rabbi Sassoon, who, uh, the, from the famous Sassoon family, but it was published by Professor Weisenberg uh, with his notes now we have a, a new edition with much better notes and uh, much more comprehensive, published by someone who you might be interested in having speak to you on a future occasion. His name is Rabbi Moshe Maimon of Lakewood, New Jersey, from a um, Turkish uh, background, and uh, he's an expert in the, uh, the Spanish tradition. Well, if you look in volume one, and this I can tell you is definitely not available online, although I can send a copy of the page, uh, Page 353 and 354, none other than Rav Avram ben says that the practice of Yibum, of liberate marriage, So Rav Avram ben here we're not talking about a 19th century scholar or a 20th century scholar, Rav Avram ben says 
that the Torah used practices that were already in existence and were uh, generally pr- practiced in order to, uh, for its own purposes, uh, to give it kedusha. And he says yibum, as well as other mitzvot. And if you look in uh, the note of Rabbi Maimon, he says that this approach, which I just mentioned, that the Torah used already existing practices and incorporates them into the Torah, that this is a basic in the thinking of Rav Avram ben Arambam, and you find it throughout his commentary, and he gives a, a number of examples of this. Furthermore, he says that this is uh, in line with the Rambam, Rav Avram ben Arambam's father, the Rambam's approach. I think uh, most of us know the Rambam's position on sacrifices, that sacrifices were, were um, a practice, pagan practice, but the Torah, the people were so attached to it, so the Torah removes it from its paganism, and uh, gives it kedusha. Furthermore, I'm not going to read on in the, but he, he cites other examples, and he goes, and he even, which uh, most people do not know about, he says that even you find this even with Rav Sadia Gaon. He's like the earliest of the great authorities uh, of the Gaonim, one of the earliest. And uh, so you can't get any uh, more important and more influential than the Rambam, Rav Sadia Gaon, or Vavra Mena Rambam. So I can only assume that the sages of, uh, well, they, they, they knew the Rambam's position on sacrifices, uh, which was quite controversial, but they did not know, I'm assuming, of Sadiagon and Ravavram and Rambam. So it's not like uh, Ben Amozig is saying something new here. He's just applying it to new uh, cases based on the modern scholarship that we know a lot more about the ancient Near East and the ancient world in general. And that was Ben Amozig's point, as we shall see, that we're supposed to use this knowledge that we have now, which we've been blessed to have all sorts of new knowledge of the ancient world, because it is going to enlighten us about the Torah. Um, the sages of Aleppo also didn't like the fact that Ben Amozig is quoting uh, heretical texts, what they call Sifrei Haminim. So, for instance, he'll quote from ancient Christian texts and ancient pagan texts, uh, they, uh, they note that Ben Amozig quotes from Samaritan works and from Karite works, as well as from the New Testament. In fact, they go so far as to say that who knows if Ben Amozig thinks that Christianity is holy. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's almost it's a chutzpah comment from them, but uh, that's what they say. They also didn't like the fact that Ben Amozig tried to prove the antiquity of Kabbalah by citing the beliefs of various ancient peoples. So for Ben Amozig, Kabbalah is the true Jewish wisdom, and it goes way back uh, to biblical times. You can find examples of Kabbalistic ideas. Ben Amozig, incidentally, was not tied to the Zohar. Whether the Zohar was written by uh, Rashbi, Rishon Mechai, or not, he said that's a literary question. But that has nothing to do with the fundamental point of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is an ancient wisdom. It's a holy wisdom. It's an authentic uh, wisdom. And uh, if you're going to tell me that the Zohar is written late, he says that has nothing to do with uh, uh, Kabbalah. So for Ben Amozig to cite Kabbalistic ideas that we find in uh, pagan practices, ancient practices, it shows that uh, the diffusion of uh, ancient Jewish wisdom, well as for his opponents, this is disgraceful. You're going to put ideas that we find in the Zohar and other Kabbalistic texts. You're going to show me uh, examples in uh, pagan uh, societies. That was, uh, in their mind, that was terrible. Let me show you an example uh, from his commentary, which also would have been jarring for the... Uh, uh, hold on a second. Uh, where is it here? Uh, 
uh, for the, this is just one, but you page after page for the sages of Aleppo. Here you have a page, just I picked a page for random from um, Saferberry's sheet. And you see here he's citing, you see the um, French references, you see a reference here to what's going on in China. This isn't uh, what uh, the sages of Aleppo are used to. And for them, this is uh, very problematic. As I said, though, his reason for the citation of these non-Jewish sources is because he was looking for Jewish. He is he was looking for Jewish sources or Jewish ideas that are preserved in various early mythologies and religions. He believes that ancient cultures included in their stories and also rituals aspects of what we can call Jewish truth, and this Jewish truth can be illuminated. I, because we don't have all we have from ancient times is uh, biblical texts. Uh, we're missing a lot of what was going on there. Uh, even the Torah itself refers to, and not just Torah, Tanakh referred to other works, which are not, we don't have them. They're not canonical. They weren't included. They were lost. So we can learn about how practices were performed and ideas by looking at other ancient societies. Now, those interested in the attack. Oh, I see, by the way, that someone was so helpful and um, sent a link to um, uh, Ben Amozig's commentary. So I'm just going to, um, I'm going to make myself a note here. I'll put it in here. Um, actually, after the class, I'll pick it up. I want to get those uh, links as well. Um, if you're interested in the attacks on Ben Amozig, well, you can, uh, there's a very good article, which I can send it to anyone, uh, by a Professor Yaron Harel at bar University. He published uh, an article devoted to the attack on uh, Ben Amozig by the Aleppo sages. He actually puts it in the context of a dispute taking place in Aleppo at that time. There was a rabbi named Rafal Kassim who uh, wanted to open up what is termed a reform community in Aleppo. Now, I, this doesn't mean reform like we think of German reform or anything like that, but it was going to be a more modern community. This rabbi had traveled throughout Europe, and he wanted to create a modern type of community in Aleppo. And this, and he's a rabbi, wrote Sfarim, was part of the traditional rabbinic uh, world there, but this created a great dispute. And the community of Aleppo has always been very conservative. It began, it, we Often we think of uh, the Sephardic world as being more open-minded and liberal and broad interests, and that is true for much of it, but not for all of it. And one place where it doesn't apply is, is Aleppo. Aleppo, uh, from, the, from the beginning until even till today, there's, uh, had always had extremist uh, tendencies, uh, and there's more we can say about that. Uh, upon learning of the Cheyron, on his book, Ben Amozig writes to the rabbis of Jerusalem, asking them to, you know, to, to pleading his case, I guess you could say. I already told you that the rabbis of Jerusalem, in substance, agreed that the book is a problem, unlike Rechaim Palachi and others. Uh, but uh, Ben Amozig writes to them, and he's shocked that the rabbis of uh, Aleppo would take such a step without being in touch with him. They're going to declare a book heretical and declare the author a heretic without uh, at least speaking to the author, asking him. I mean, he isn't some nobody. He's someone that people know. He's a known entity. He's a well-known author and publisher. Um, it's in this letter of Ben Amozig that we get a very good understanding of how Ben Amozig understands a number of important issues. And that's what I want to focus on. 
how Ben Amosig sees the role of wisdom in Torah, how he defends himself, and his branches often in a number of different areas. That's what I want to focus on. Now, until a few years ago, if, and this, when I first saw this, um, this letter, and um, I, I saw it in the journal Halavanon, which is where it appeared, and you had to go on the microfilm. And you have to print out the pages. Now you don't need the microfilm. You can go online, the Hebrew University or the Jewish National Library site. But there are many issues. You have to scroll through all of them. We're fortunate we don't have to do that anymore. I'll tell you why. Because this book came out in, um, let me get to the year, hold on, the year in 2009. I don't know if you've seen this book. It's called um, Tradition in a Modern Era. And each one of the figures focused on in this book is deserving of classes. The first one is Eliyahu ben Amozid. The next is the Ben Yishchai of Yosef Chayim. Then comes Moshe Kalfon HaKohen of Jerba. Jerba, we should do, you should do something on Jerba. I've, I'm actually going, I've been to Jerba and I'm going and back after Shavuot, I'm taking my son. Why am I taking my son to Jerba? Uh, because uh, I want to show him a pure Judaism that has not been influenced by the modern world, for good or for bad. That is a Judaism that continues the way it always has, with almost no changes. They're not looking over their shoulders. They're not worried about Frumkite or having adapted on the left to modernity. They're just existing the way they did 100 years ago, 500 years ago. It's really something to see. Uh, I'm doing this also because I want to lead, I was supposed to lead a tour in 2020. During the summer, I lead Jewish history tours. I go to France, I go to Spain, I go to Italy, go to Central Europe, Morocco, lots of good places. And I want to lead a tour, first tour, well, maybe not the absolute first, but one of the first tours of um, Jews to Tunisia, all over Tunisia. Maybe it would be the first uh, American kosher tour. A group of Hasidim recently went there, but they only went to Jerba, really. I want to take people all over, including the Star Wars fans, because uh, there's a bunch of Star Wars sites for those. Okay, so that's Moshe Kalfana Cohen. Ben Sion Mayor Chayuziel. I know you've heard of him. Rav Yosef Massas. Great uh, Rav Yosef Massas from Meknes and uh, Haifa, Rav Chaim David Alevi. And the last one is Rav Yehud Ashkenazi uh, Manitou. He's a, a French uh, scholar who, uh, in the English-speaking world, they don't know much about him, but quite uh, interesting. So in this book, what they do is they include selections, uh, important passages from um, Ben Amozig. And one of the things they include, goes on for pages and pages, is a good portion of the response of Eliel ben Amozid, the letter to the sages of Jerusalem. And that's what I want to focus on uh, because, as I said, that's where you see a vision of Judaism that uh, is just as uh, relevant today as when he wrote it. Uh, to begin with, let me begin by saying that the, this notion that the Aleppo rabbis have that there's something wrong with secular studies, and especially this is, it's even more wrong uh, to say that secular studies, what they would regard secular studies, could be used to prove the truth of Torah or illuminate aspects of Torah, that that's problematic. Uh, this is not something that any Italian rabbi could ever accept, not in the 19th century, not in the 18th century, not at all. Um, this was so much a part of Italian um, Jewish culture that there's wisdom among the nations that they never could accept that. 
On the contrary, though, that in today's day and age, it's even more important to reject such a narrow-minded viewpoint. And Ben Amozik states that in today's day and age, it is important, it is vital to know secular studies, not just to be a gentleman or something like that, but no, to know secular studies, to use them as tools to illuminate, to defend, and to expound the Torah. And that's the job of a rabbi in contemporary times. Well, he begins his response, that is, Eliel ben begins his response by stating that Torah and secular studies cannot be kept as two separate spheres, because this will create religious doubt. It, it, it's not that we have Torah and then we have the secular wisdoms. No, they need to be joined together. It's almost a Hersheyan synthesis. People will see that there's contradictions between them if you don't try to synthesize them. You need to synthesize them into one truth, because there is only one truth. The Aleppo rabbis criticized him for mixing Torah with secular. His reply is that they must be mixed. And it's not really even secular, as we're going to say, but they must be mixed. He acknowledges, though, he acknowledges that in theory, he's not a Hershey in, that, uh, in the sense that in every generation, the ideal Hirsch thought was for Torah and Western and the civilization, I should say, to be joined together. No, Ben Amosik says that if in theory we would be in a society where we only would concentrate on Torah and there were no heretical books and we didn't have any challenges from the outside world, like some sort of Gan Eden that you could imagine, if you could imagine such a thing, then in theory we could focus only on Torah. Then the proper way to live, he says, perhaps would only be focusing on Torah. But he says, this isn't the world we live in. Not only is it not the world we live in now, it's never been the world we live in. Unless traditional thinkers are able to deal with the intellectual challenges and offer responses, he says that Judaism cannot thrive and flourish, and especially in the modern world. If we don't reply to the contemporary challenges, this is what he says in the, end, in the middle of the 19th century. It could just easily be said in 2022. If we don't respond and deal with the intellectual challenges that are out there, people will assume it's because we have nothing to say. And we can't provide an answer. Well, if that's what people are going to assume, then clearly they're going to say, well, then there's no answers in Torah Judaism. Let's, let's abandon it. Let's leave it. Um, not everyone will say this. Simple people won't say that, but the sophisticated will. And that's what Ben Amosik says. That sophisticated modern European Jews they see contradictions, they see difficulties, and they look to the rabbis to provide answers. And if the rabbis are simply going to put their head in the ground like ostriches and not have anything to say, they're acknowledging they don't have answers. They're acknowledging that the Torah cannot coexist with the modern wisdoms, that it can only exist in a, uh, in a ghetto, in a society, uh, in a backward society. Well, for Ben Amosig, that's, uh, that's the biggest chul Hashem, the biggest disgrace there can be. He points to, he says, educated Jews, and that's who he's speaking to, educated Jews will be led to reject the Torah unless we provide an answer for them. He points to the Jews of Algeria, who became casualties in this regard. That is, um, French culture comes to Algeria uh, before it comes to other parts of uh, North Africa, because the French had moved in early there and uh, early 19th century, not being prepared for this encounter with the West, with modern uh, ideas, with sec secular uh, societies, modern education, and the rabbis were not prepared to prepare their uh, lay people for this. It led to complete rejection 
of Torah lifestyle, of Torah values. After all, these people started educating their children in the French schools, and the rabbi had nothing to rabbis had nothing to say to the new uh, wisdom that they were being taught there: philosophy, uh, archaeology, history, etc. Furthermore, Ben Amosik says it's not just that this is going to lead to uh, people abandoning tradition, abandoning religion. It's a disgrace to the Torah, because as I said, it shows that we have nothing to say to the modern world. He assumes that the rabbis of the Middle East are simply unaware of the issues facing Jews in Europe because they're living in some sort of ghetto, though, to use a, a Western, to use a European term, but they have no involvement and the culture that they were living in, the, the, the non-Jewish culture was uh, not an advanced culture, and therefore the Jewish culture doesn't need to respond to it. So he's down with Kaf's foot, you can say. He assumes that the rabbis in Aleppo simply don't know what it means to live in the Western world. The idea that you're going to say you're not going to investigate these matters is just incomprehensible. Then he says that one cannot understand the meaning of the Torah in any area without knowing secular studies. He's going a little far, perhaps, but he says in any area. And he gives an example from Aseb Reshit, the creation story. And you can find this on page uh, 26 um, in the um, in uh, Masoret Vidal HaModerni. He, uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, I don't need to read from it, but uh, the whole idea of what, how do we understand what the creation story is? If we don't know modern science, modern science now teaches us things. Now, he's not talking about Big Bang or anything like that, but uh, they had certain understandings already in the 19th century about uh, what scientists were saying about uh, how old the world was, how it developed. Well, how can you understand the creation story then? How do you know what the creation story is going to teach us? If you're going to assume that uh, science has shown that the world is billions of years old, then you can't understand the creation story at the Torah because you're going to take it literally, but that's not what it's meant uh, to tell you. So he says that uh, even right from the very beginning of Breshit, you need to know secular wisdoms. He says we can't understand the Torah's description of Egypt without knowing the languages and practices of Egypt. And this includes the names. He says you have the name Tzafna Paneach, Shifra, Pua. What do these names mean? Even the name Moshe. The Torah says that Moshe was called this because he was pulled out of the water, but uh, we know that the daughter of Pharaoh didn't speak Hebrew. So uh, what's going on there? Uh, Well, in his commentary on Shemot, uh, he explains that the Torah will often add more than one reason for a name. The Torah gives us one name, uh, one reason for this name. That's, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a drosh, but that's the Torah for its purposes gives one reason. But there's also... um, uh, an Egyptian reason for this name, the actual historical reason, I guess maybe you'd want to put it that, uh, and the pshat is, as he says, that the name is Egyptian, and the Torah adds the Hebrew explanation, and uh, he discusses the name Moses uh, in Egyptian, what it means. This name Moses, it, it sort of means, it means like to be born into, or it's the same name you see Ramses at the end. You have the, what is Ramses? It means Ra, the god Ra, that's a big Egyptian god, is born into, uh, is born into you. And uh, so uh, we know about this name Moses as a suffix, and he, he speaks about that. After mentioning the necessity for understanding the ancient world, to understand the Torah, he says, quote, in particular, for those who live in these lands, that is in particular for those who live 
in the modern world, in the Western world. It's one thing to be completely divorced from modern scholarship and science in Syria or in Jerusalem. But for people living in the modern world, you can't ignore modern scholarship. He says at the bottom of page uh, 26 and on to 27, he says that, uh, he says to show you what I'm talking about, uh, how important he says, let's just look at some of the rabbis who, uh, who agreed with this. And uh, he cites the Talmud. Even if you cite, if you, anyone recites a word of wisdom, even from the nations, is called a chacham. That's in the Talmud. So how can you say there's a problem? Uh, and he cites other examples that show, and then he goes on to explain that we know that the sages of the Talmud were bekeen bekol chachma. They were wise in every area. And they used it. They knew astronomy. They knew science. How can you say that this is a problem? On the contrary, it's very important. He mentions how the members of the Sanhedrin, we know that they had to know all sorts of knowledge. So this, from this we see that knowledge of all aspects of the world is important and necessary. And this also includes, he says, matters against Torah. After all, the sages tell us that you have to know how to answer heretic. He mentions uh, Talmudic sages who knew how to answer heretics, who studied these works. And he also mentions Talmudic sages, such as Shem Barachai or Yudha Nasi, who were learned in all sorts of wisdom, medicine, astronomy, philosophy. So how then can the sages of Aleppo condemn Ben Amosik's commentary for engaging with all these different forms of wisdom? He recalls how the great medieval scholars, I should add in the the Sephardic tradition, uh, spoke about the importance of secular studies. He quotes Rav Bachya ibn Pakoda, the Chavot HaLavavot, who says that the only people who serve God properly are prophets and philosophers because only they have an understanding of uh, matters, important matters, divine matters. He then quotes positive things said about secular studies. And secular studies really in quotes, because for many of these figures, these are not secular at all. If they enable you to better understand Torah, they're not secular. There are pertinences, or for the Rambam, they're not, they're actually holy. This, the subjects that, uh, if you look at the beginning of uh, the Mishnah Torah, uh, before you get to uh, typical rabbinic stuff. He teaches you about physics and metaphysics, chemistry, science, because uh, we're obligated to we have to love God. Well, how can you love God? It's an intellectual love. And the only way to intellectually love God, you can't know God in God's essence, but you can look at his handiwork and what he's looking. You look at how the eye is constructed and that leads you into wonderment of God. And uh, that's for the Rambam. That's, that's not secular studies. That's, uh, that's Torah studies. That's Masa Bereshit and Masa Merkava. But uh, Ben Amozik also quotes Rav Sadiagon, or Yosef Albo, a number of others, even the Maharsha, the Ashkenazic sage, uh, Shmuel Edels, uh, who in his commentary mentions, he repeats this from earlier sages, that the seven branches of the menorah correspond to the seven wisdoms. This, they're famous, the seven branches of wisdom, uh, different versions of it. But uh, Rabbach Ibn Bakuda mentions these are the seven branches of wisdom. One is logic. Two is mathematics. Three is physics and chemistry. They go together. Four is ge- mathematics. You know, ge- sorry, four is geometry and trigonometry. Five is music. Music is a chokhmah. Six is astronomy. And seven is uh, theology, philosophy. Uh, so these are all vital. Of course, he also quotes the Rambam, as I said, um, uh, who, uh, who is explicit about this, not just... Uh, explicit about the necessity of so-called secular subjects, which are not secular at all. 
Then Amosi goes into great detail. I mean, this is this goes on for pages and pages. He talks about how the prophets were men of wisdom. He even cites the legend. I'm a little surprised that he was taken in by this, uh, but uh, he cites the legend mentioned by Abarbanel that Plato studied with the prophet Jeremiah. The dates actually don't work out, but this is uh, this is a, a legend, but uh, it has an important aspect here because it shows that even Jeremiah uh, wanted to know philosophy. And then on pages 31, 32, he gives you a whole list. Just listen to the names of these figures. And then he can, and how then, his, his, his answer is, how can you say there's anything wrong with what I'm doing and studying these works when this is whose footsteps I follow in? And by the way, the, the, the sages of, of uh, Aleppo, they come from this tradition as well. It's not like they're coming from um, the Ashkenazic tradition. Rav Shmuel, uh, who says here, Rav Shmuel Bar Chofni, Rav Hai Gaon, Rav Sadi Gaon, Rav Yitzhak Yisraeli, Rav Shmuel Hanagid, and his son Rav Yosef Hanagid, Rav Shmuel Ibn Gabiral, he mentions Roshento Falakera, Rav Yitzhak Ibn Giyat, Ibn Ezra, both Ibn Ezra's, Avrab Ibn Ezra, Moshe Ibn Ezra, um, the Kuzari, the Seder HaKabbalah, that's uh, Rav Daud, Rabachia, the author of the Sefer Yetzirah, the Ralbag, Rabbeinu Peretz, the, the Marachat um, HaLehut, Rav Shimon ben Semach Doran, the Tashbeitz, Rav Yosef Albo, Rav Moshe Botrilo, Rav Avram Bigbago, the Abarbanel, father and son, Abraham Herrera, the Mekubal, Rav Moshe Chaim Watsato, and on and on and on. So then, uh, how, how, how is he doing anything wrong? The answer is he's not doing anything wrong. He says, Imkain, Mapish, you know, what's my sin? What's, uh, if I followed Hashlenim Ha'ere, if I followed these people, What's what's wrong with, with what I've done? Whoa, would that I have an old Sharon Olam Haba under their feet, he says. And then he continues. He says, uh, yeah, he says, today in Europe, we need the secular studies even more than they need in its past. Otherwise, uh, in the past, otherwise I said we'll be seen as uh, as backwards, unsophisticated, and therefore he says, everything I have done in my commentary is important for Judaism. And then he goes on to say that um, when it comes to the non-Jews, they say valuable things. We, we shouldn't push them away. On the contrary, we should learn from what they have to say. On pages 33 and 34, he says, he cites a, um, a Talmudic passage where the sages say, you did not behave like the, the good Gentiles. Rather, you behave like the Kukalim Shabbat so this shows, he explains, that uh, we're supposed to learn from uh, those non-Jews who are advanced, who are cultured. After all, the Talmud, he said, he goes on, the Talmud says that we, learn, we can learn sniyot from a cat, and we can learn uh, from other animals, we can learn things. If we can learn it from animals, certainly we can learn it from uh, non-Jews. And finally, he says at the end of uh, uh, page 34, he says, look at the difference between the, the Rishonim, the Kedoshe Elyon, he calls them, to the modern-day scholars, the Aleppo sages, who have uh, degraded my book. That uh, He says, the Ramban, Nachmanides, right at the beginning of Parshat Noach, how does he explain the rain? He explains it by using Aristotle. And Ramban says, 
that we have to accept with Aristotle's explanation. And he also explains uh, tohu, from tohu vavohu, in accordance with the idea of hiuli. Um, uh, and he goes on and on, uh, giving examples how uh, they brought rayot, but why? Why not? If the non-Jews or the non-believers are saying valuable things, we will learn from them. He then takes up the opposition. And by the way, before I go further, everything Ben Amozik says, you can take out these pages, which I've just summarized for you. You can translate them. You can use them in all sorts of ways. They, are a, uh, they really provide a message, not just for his time, but for today as well, a justification for being an open-minded culture, wide re- widely read traditional Jew. And this isn't something modern. This isn't modern orthodoxy. This isn't something invented in the 19th century uh, by Shamshon uh, Raphael Hirsch. No, no, this is, as Ben said, this is the tradition. Going back to the Geonim, he's just following the tradition. It's the rabbis in Aleppo who've lost the tradition. He then takes up a different issue. And that's the opposition to him for speaking of Torah laws being similar to laws in the ancient world. And as I already mentioned, that uh, his approach is in line with Rav Avram ben Rambam, and uh, as well as others, uh, the Rambam himself. Uh, he, ben Amozig, doesn't have Avram ben Rambam. He would have been very happy to have it. Instead, he has the Ramban. The Ramban in Bereshit, chapter 19, says that the practice of seven days of rejoicing after a wedding was perhaps an ancient practice that was then incorporated. His point is there's nothing wrong with saying that the Torah incorporates ancient practices, because if you remove them and you remove the paganism and you instill holiness in them, then uh, what's the problem? And he brings a few different examples there and throughout his commentary, he brings other examples of practices that were no in the ancient world that we do just like the non-Jews uh, uh, did. It's just uh, the way of counting. Like we can't ever wonder why and the uh, I don't know if uh, in the Sephardic Minyanim they do this, but on, um, on Yom Kippur, the way they, we go through the whole, how, how the Kohen Gadol would count, how the Kohen, so they count, not one, two, three, they, we have a whole different way of counting. He tries to show parallels for the ancient world for that. And he makes, he elaborates on how it makes sense that if we find in ancient societies things similar to what the Torah says, that makes perfect sense because wasn't Avraham, don't we assume that Avraham would have been an important individual in his time, one with influence, one who would have been interested in, um, in passing on this message of the one true God? We know that he did, and uh, therefore it makes sense that in that part of the world you would find other people who also had adopted what we now call Jewish practices, but then were just practices, monotheist practices uh, from the one true God as revealed to Avraham Avinu. He mentions the rite of circumcision. The Arabs do circumcision. So it goes back to Ishmael, and then it's practiced by his descendants. Uh, we know where that comes from. So wouldn't it make sense that there would be other commonalities of practice between Abraham and his descendants and the larger community among which they lived? As I said, the rabbis of Aleppo were particularly annoyed, opposed to Ben Amozik's statement that uh, the ancient wise men, non-Jewish wise men, had Kabbalistic knowledge. Now, from our perspective, this might seem uh, unsophisticated, uh, but uh, the issue that Ben Amozik was confronting is if this is religiously objectionable. And uh, he shows that it's not. He cites earlier authorities who had the exact same approach, none other than the Ramah, Ramosha Israelis. 
Rabbi uh, Yasharm of Kandia, Rabbi Yosef uh, Shlomo Domedigo. And there's, he also cites the famous statement in the Zohar that Malchut Yavan, Malchut Yavan is close to the proper path. What does that mean, close to the proper path? He understands this is referring to Platonic uh, philosophy. So even the Zohar speaks in these terms. Now, after this lengthy defense of his views, Ben-Amozig has a three-page conclusion, which doesn't focus on the correctness of his views. That's not really the concern at the end there. He says, you can reject everything I've said. But then the question is, but now that you reject what I've said, how do you treat me? Let's assume I'm mistaken everything I said. Does this mean that I'm a heretic? And my book should be burnt? Is this the way to treat someone who makes an honest mistake? And he quotes from Yosef Albo, who famously says that one who intends to produce and to study Torah and produce Torah truth, if he makes a mistake, an honest mistake, he's not a heretic. Even if his view is a heretical view, but he is an honest, erring student. And he says, don't I get the same... Um, Shouldn't I get the same treatment? It uh, should be obvious that I'm doing this, um, you know, for the glory of God and to help the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. So how then to throw me out and treat me like a nobody, like you did? And then he quotes to show that this is too is part of the tradition. He quotes examples of great sages who said things that were regarded by other rabbis as an opposition to basic Jewish ideas. But they never regarded these rabbis as heretics. He mentions the, the Rambam had views that were rejected. I already mentioned it, the sacrifices. That's, that's strongly rejected by some. The Rambam's notion that uh, stories that ha- happened in dreams, biblical stories happen in dreams, so for the angels coming to Avraham that happened in a dream, the Rambam says that this is akin to heresy. And yet they never stopped respecting the Rambam, even if they rejected his views. He refers to the Ralbag, Rav Levi ben Gershom. Very important figure. He's in our Mikro adult. He even has a crater on the moon named after him. And yet uh, he believed that the world is created from eternal matter. The Ralbag did not believe in Yeshmeyayan, creation from nothing, because he thought that that was an impossibility. So this goes against, uh, Ben Amozig says, traditional Jewish thinking. This is clearly based on. Um, uh, Greek philosophical views of what the deity can and cannot do, and yet the Ralbag hasn't been thrown out. Yeah, it's true. Uh, if I were to put a footnote, I would say there were some who wanted to throw the Ralbag out. His famous book called Muhammad Hashem was termed Muhammad Im Hashem, not the wars, wars of the Lord, the wars against the Lord. But uh, today, all you have to do is open up the Mikral Kedor Chumash, and the Ralbag is there. So his the few unusual views he had were uh, seen as unusual. They're put off to the side. But uh, he's not been rejected. Uh, in fact, Ibn Ezra also has radical views. And um, Ben Amozig mentions that. He says as follows. On page uh, 45 at the top, um, he, talks, he, he notes the irony of uh, that um, in, in Aleppo, they seem to like Ibn Ezra very much. And there were even uh, commentaries produced by Aleppo sages, or one, at least one Aleppo sage, about Ibn Ezra, but uh, they liked Ibn Ezra very much. Ibn Ezra has, has radical views, not least among, and he mentions this, that uh, he thought that uh, that there are additions to the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu did not write. 
That's clear in the uh, Ibn Ezra, uh, the, uh, the secret of the 12. And uh, Ibn Ezra said radical things, so, uh, and yet he's still part of the tradition. He hasn't been thrown out. So why should I be any different? Why do you treat me any different? He concludes, he says, uh, and if you're going to say that um, I, things I, I've commented on and I've uh, written, that's going to lead people to uh, make mistakes, to misinterpret the Torah, to come to conclusions that are inappropriate. Um, he says that we don't, uh, we're not concerned with that. We're not, we have to write the truth. And if someone is going to see the truth and be misled, and you're going to say, well, therefore, I shouldn't write the truth. No, that's not the Jewish tradition. And um, he gives an example from the Talmud. The Talmud says that uh, when Moshe Rabbeinu was uh, recording the Torah, he, he started with the Pasuk, Nasa Adam, let us make man in our image. And it portrays Moshe Rabbeinu saying to God, uh, why should we write this? Then people are going to assume that there's more than one God. It's a plural, Nasa Adam. And uh, the, this is the Midrash, uh, has God then replying to uh, Moshe saying, you have to write it, those who want to make a mistake or are inclined to make a mistake, they're going to make a mistake. The, the, what's the point of this Midrash? Uh, the point of the Midrash is uh, that they're portraying a situation where Moshe Rabbeinu was seeing a problem in the Torah, and uh, Kodesh Baruch who says to him, no, we're not concerned with that, we write the truth, if someone's going to be misled and led astray, that's we can't censor ourselves. We have to speak the truth, and uh, that's exactly what Ben Amos says. I'm doing. I'm citing things, and don't tell me that some simpleton is going to read this and then come to the wrong conclusions. If that was the case, we can never speak the truth because there's always going to be simpletons who are going to make mistakes like this. Uh, and he um, yeah, he, he can he continues uh, giving similar uh, I- examples like this. Um, uh, oh, I see I've gone long enough. So what I want to conclude then is that this text, which um, which I've expounded on the, with you today, although it is written for a, in a specific time and place and for a specific purpose, namely to defend himself against the accusation that his commentary is a heretical work, it's actually much more important than that because it presents, as I said, a vision, a Sephardic vision, if I may put it that way, of how to relate to the outside world, wisdom in the outside world, following in the footsteps of all the uh, important Sephardic sages that came before, and uh, quite apart from the dispute between the Aleppo sages and uh, and uh, Rabbi Ben Amozig, it offers um, an approach to the study of Torah. Now, if you pick up uh, his commentary today, I have to tell you that uh, for many weeks, uh, I read it when I um, I got it, like for a year, I would uh, read. Uh, and whenever you don't see the uh, the English lettering, you know, the French quotes and all that, that's the parts I like, because then it's just Torah. And I think he has many good insights. I have to be honest and say that uh, his archaeology, his history, it's very dated. But that's okay, because what he provides in this work is an approach. To be a follower of Ben Amozik today is you would produce a chumash, just like he did, except now you give the more modern science. 
and the more modern uh, history and the more modern archaeology. The point is not whether some of the things he says are unsophisticated and scholars today don't accept that. Of course they don't. It's 150-year-old scholarship. But he, and you could say the same about the Rambam science. Look at the Mishnah Torah. He describes the, uh, the Ptolemaic astronomy. The point is, though, that there, he, he's following in this path and providing us with the next step in this path, that you, you take the best that modern scholarship could offer, you integrate it in the Torah system, always knowing that the, uh, the, the science and the history might have to be revised. Uh, but that's okay, because we can't live in this world uh, bifurcated. We can't live and cut ourselves off from the science and the history. We have to deal with the best that's out there and uh, learn it as part of uh, our broader explorations into our tradition. And much of the history will not be, uh, will stand the test of time, even if in certain details uh, we will uh, update it. So I think uh, I've uh, I've spoken long enough. Let me uh, go through the questions here or the comments. I just, I do want to, because I'm afraid I'm going to log off and I'm not going to have all the links here. So um, I see that um, I don't, uh, let me uh, respond to the questions here, but I do, or can I ask um, one of you to uh, yes, we copy. can email it to you. Don't, yes, don't please worry. Just email me all these uh, things because uh, I don't know if I have saved all the volumes of Chacham Menamozig's Amon Mikrach. Just send it to my email. Thank you very much. Because uh, I was I, I was looking for one of them. I can't remember which one, but I couldn't find it online. And I know it's on there. Clearly, you provided it because I have a printout of it. Uh, okay. Is there an online resource that you can share? Uh, an online source you can share in the response of Aleppo and the Jerusalem rabbis or Ben Moses Amon Mikra? What I have is the article by uh, Professor Yaron Harel. You'd have to ask him um, to. It's not available online. I have a PDF of it, which I can send to anyone, but to post it, uh, um, maybe you have to get his permission. But he answers emails. Uh, he's a, an expert in uh, uh, the, the Syrian Jewish history. Uh, that's what he came to the Benamozig issue because of the, his interest in the Syrian Jewish community uh, and their history. Um, anyone who wants me to email them, just send it to me and I will send you the link. Send me an email. Chacham um, Mark, do we know the names or biographies of the Rabbanim in Aleppo, Jerusalem, who wrote against Chacham Ben Amozeg? Um, you know, I'm forgetting now if the names, uh, we know who the rabbis in Aleppo were. We definitely know who they were. Um, and at, at the uh, the end of the letter, uh, I'll pull it up right now for you. Um, I'll show you. Um, it has their names. I'm going to pull it up right now. Hold on a second. Let me... Uh, let me pull your screen up here. I'll show you. Here it is. At the end of the um, the letter, you can see all the rabbis who signed. I don't think, you'd have to ask Professor Harrell, I don't think any leading uh, Aleppo sages declined to sign this. And uh, and the, the Jerusalem rabbis we know as well, but I forget now. It, it's in Harrell's article. But here you can see uh, the rabbis, you have to you have to learn how to read the script and everything. But everything is in Harel's article. He has all the details. Uh, okay, let me. Um, any other questions here? Um, someone says for Rambam, it was the sacrifices of San Yibum. Which mitzvah did Sadiagon contextualize? Uh, it's a good question. Um, 
it's actually a carbon note also that um, he says as follows. Um, it appears that uh, carbon note because uh, he says, uh, he refers to um, the, the things that we do in the Mishkan. Uh, he says that we were obligated to serve God in all the ways that we're accustomed to do. So it appears that uh, Maimon says, it appears that that's, that, uh, that's what he means, the minhagenu, the practices that we're accustomed to do, uh, that is before being commanded. Uh, so that's what he says. His actual language is... Uh, He, first of all, he says that um, he, he says to see what he says in uh, in his discussion of the Masahe Egel, where he gives other examples. I don't know what examples he gives there. He just says mitzvot shonot. But then he says it appears that this is also his view with karbanot. Things um, okay. I don't see any other comments here. Any other? Uh, uh, I have a, a couple of. Quick questions, um, if I may, if no one else has. Um, the first one is, why did Aleppo specifically have these more um, extremist or conservative tendencies? Um, like, even compared to, I guess, Damascus, is, is that the contrast you're making? Um, why Aleppo? Well, yeah, I, I don't know if, it, because uh, the Aleppo had more sages, uh, Damascus had sages as well, but Aleppo was a more rabbinic uh, um, there was a much, it was a greater, I guess, rabbinic community. I don't know. I don't know why. I have to say, I'm not sure why. Uh, and um, I, I, I don't have the answer to that. You look in the Ben Ishchai, you don't see things. I mean, you see all sorts of unusual views and maybe liberal things as well as, and he's in a very traditional society. I don't know about Aleppo. And maybe it's a bit of a, a caricature because obviously there's also uh wide learning that uh, came up with uh, all sorts of new perspectives in the Aleppo sages as well. But when it came to modernity, we know that they were, um, they were very hesitant and opposed to uh, some, uh, when the French Alliance came in certain Sephardic cities, they were welcomed. And in others, uh, they were very much opposed. It turns out that the people who opposed them were correct uh, in retrospect. But the fact that some uh, traditional Sephardic communities were more open shows that there was a uh, an openness towards uh, learning that you didn't have in other places. So I don't have an answer really about the uh, Professor Harrell is, I guess, the person to talk about that. The yeah. uh, same question I had is uh, a conversation I was having quite recently with an Italian Italian Jew, and you were talking about the Italian tradition um how they were more open and they had people like Ben Amozeg was was not an exception um but he was he was uh, sort of lamenting the fact that that something went wrong there because he was saying that sadly there there, there aren't any Chacham Ben Amozegs coming out and uh, from his from his experience they aren't coming out in the, in the near future either um so so something went wrong in this sort of integrative in, um integrationist approach um, and I was wondering if you had any insight as as to you're referring to Italy in particular, correct? Italy, Italy in particular. Okay. Um, I mean, before I will answer that. Before I do that, let me just say I, I I know many people in the Syrian community. In fact, I've spoken often in the Syrian community, and among the more Western educated 
types, uh, they have this issue because they're from Aleppo and they know that uh, their tradition has been very opposed to it. So it's an interesting walk uh, that they have to take uh, there. There's even one guy who wanted to put out uh, a commentary of Ben Amozig, I was told, but uh, he felt he couldn't because of the controversy. There was a someone, there is someone who put out Reggio's commentary but he put it out apparently without his names because also this obviously would be very opposed in the Aleppo community. The problem with Italy was that they never trained Talmudic scholars. The last great uh, Italian Torah sage, Halachas, Posek, his name was Rishmola Kohen of Modena. He authored the Tshuvot Zera Emet. His name was Yishmael. Yishmael is a kosher name. It's, it's an okay. We believe Yishmael did Teshuvah. It's because the Arab-Israeli dispute, you can't name your kid Yishmael today, but uh, maybe... Maybe if the rest of the Arab world follows the UAE and we live to see this, then Yishmael will once again be a kosher name because we say Rabbi Yishmael on there. We know that it's a good name. Now, Rabbi Yishmael Akoin of Modna was a great Talmudist, a great posseik. In fact, if um, his Cheshuvot, Zara Emet, if you look on the Barilan, Ravavadi Yosef quotes the Zara Emet more than he quotes the Igrot Moshev or Moshe Feinstein. That shows how significant it is as a Sefer. But after that, you do not have any great Italian sages. They never, uh, there were no, no yeshivot there. They had yeshivot, obviously, in Venice and Ferrara and all sorts of other, other places. But with the rise of modernity, they were overtaken by modernity. And they never developed a system where um, they could, uh, they, they, they remained a pious community that is observant. But uh, all the great intellectual attributes that the Italian community had were focused then on uh, secular pursuits, not on Torah pursuits. And the rabbis became more technicians. They could tell you how to do a wedding and what to do on Shabbat, but they were not great uh, Talmudists. And and uh, that uh, we have to put the blame on the Italian Italian community for not creating, uh, not continuing the yeshivot. And they they became infatuated to a certain extent with uh, Western culture. And, uh, and it's a problem, and you see the exact results that you're, uh, but it's not just in Italy. We saw this in Amsterdam as well. We saw this in London, uh, where it, it was the genius in Germany that they said you need to combine high-level Torah study with, uh, with um, advanced learning in, in Western civilization. Otherwise, uh, you can have pious Jews, but you're not going to have serious Torah scholars. And it's a real shame about Italy. When I go on my trips to Italy, uh, that's what we do on the bus. All we do is we talk, I talk about the great Italian sages and there's so many sages in Italy of all different sorts. And, um, and then it just stops by the, um, by the middle of the 18th century, even the early 18th century, you no longer have Talmudists. And by the end of the 18th century, you don't even have great uh, scholars like Shadal anymore. Ben Amozig is really the final one. He dies in 1900. And after that, uh, and he's in Livorno. Livorno had, serious Torah learning for longer than other parts of Italy. But Livorno also fell by the wayside. It was a failure of institutions to, to train I believe them. so, yes. And you see the same thing, uh, I think you saw the same thing in London. And not just among the Sephardim, you saw it among the Ashkenazim as well. Um, okay, a final question, uh, Eitan asked, didn't Rav Gon also write that if modern science or science contradicts something in Torah and you your Gemara and they have solid proof that we must conclude that we don't understand a Torah Gemara and perhaps shouldn't take it literally. He does say that in speaking about, he doesn't, he doesn't say that about Gemara. He says it about the Torah. And he says, if there is 
proven, if science proves something. And uh, so, for instance, uh, he didn't know this because before his time, but if science proves that the um, the earth revolves around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth, then you need to look at the verses of the Torah and uh, understand them uh, not literally. So it's uh, the Torah speaks in the language of men. Rav Sadia Gaon is the first one to affirm this, but then this becomes the standard position of all the, the Sephardic sages, because there's two truths here. There's scientific truth, and there's uh, Torah truth, and scientific truth is also true. And uh, we're not supposed to just uh, look away from it to make believe it doesn't exist. No, either we don't understand the Torah properly, or we don't understand the science. But if it's proven, now it's not so simple to prove something. How do you prove something? In mathematics, we can prove two plus two is four, but science is more complicated. But he says, as a general rule, that if something is proven, and therefore it is true, so then what to do about the Torah? Well, the Torah also has truth. But in this case, the Torah's truth must not be literal. The Torah says that God has a human form. He has a hand. The Torah is explicit about this. But since it has been proven, it's proven as best it can be proven, uh, the Rambam can provide the proofs for you that God does not have a physical form. Therefore, it must be that when the Torah speaks of God's outstretched arm, it is not to be understood literally. It has to be understood figuratively. That's an example of what Rasad Yagon uh, is speaking about. So I, uh, if there's nothing else, I want to thank you uh, all for coming out today. I also have to say that uh, it, I did it, uh, I went longer than I thought, but I was able to um, include include everything in this class. So uh, I don't feel I need to come back next week if you want to speak about Ben Amozig, because uh, a lot of people can speak about Ben Amozig, perhaps the other things, but I wanted to speak about uh, his defense of Torah and Chochmah. And um, I think we accomplished that today. So I'm very happy on a future occasion to come back and speak to you, maybe even speak to you about Ben Amozig. But uh, at least uh, for now, I was able to... Um, I'll get schar al as they say. I'll get my schar out of uh, making it, uh, not extending it uh, needlessly. So thank you all. Thank thank you so, so much. That was such an informative class. I'm sure everyone went so thorough and uh, and enlightening. And I think this class could easily be our Chabura promo video. I mean, <laughs> it, it represents everything that we, we want to um, embody. So... Just a, a couple of announcements before everyone goes. Um, the Chabura recently, as, as I'm sure some of you know, we published our first book on Pesach. It's a compendium of essays, which I think follows Chacham Ben Amozeg's approach. Um, all sorts of disciplines, different. We have people from all different uh, professions, history, psychology, and trying to expound on Pesach ideas using their their expertise. So very much that approach. I'm delighted to announce we, we we've sold over 200 copies in the first week. Um, so please do get hold of, of your copy. It's on Amazon, the Chabura, Pesach, it will come up straight away. Um, and a reminder to everyone that we have Rabbi Dr. Eddie Reichman is giving a shiur on Wednesday about Harambam and, and contemporary medical challenges. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Shapiro. That was unbelievable. We, we'll be in touch for, for the future classes. And, um, that was fantastic. And best of luck for the important uh, endeavors that uh, you were engaged in. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining. And we look forward to seeing you.